We'll open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 9. We're going verse by verse through Mark, and let me just give you a little preview. Over the next few chapters, things are going to be moving very quick. Jesus has now, at least Mark's narrative of Jesus, completed his time and his journey through and around and in amongst the Galileans, there in Galilee and Capernaum, and is about to start heading south with his face, as Luke will tell us, sternly set on Jerusalem. He's going on purpose to die. But before that, he wants to have final instruction with his little band of men and the followers who have collected around them as well. And what he's teaching on here is of epic importance for these new disciples and who are the ones who will be carrying on the, the torch of the gospel ultimately for you and for me and for us by implication. Let me read the passage for us. Mark chapter 9 verses 30 through 41, which might at first reading appear as not connected, but all of it is teaching one dynamic truth. Mark chapter nine, verse 30. Mark writes, from there they went out and began to go through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement and were afraid to ask. They came to Capernaum, and when he was there in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first... He shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not hinder him. For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly, I say to you, he will not lose his reward. We live in a generation obsessed with greatness. If you're not convinced, let me provide you some examples that you're very familiar with. The endless top ten lists, right? The best and the worst, top 10, is when you get nearer to the end of the year, especially in sports channels, on sports channels, is the top this, the top that. 
Um, then there's the Guinness Book of World Records to be the best at something, usually something weird. Sports are obsessed with records, especially baseball. The baseball record book must be operated by someone who really needs therapy. <laughs> there's the never-ending arguments about the greatest quarterback or the greatest running back, or the greatest pitcher, or the greatest shortstop, the greatest president, all the way down to the greatest barbecue. And if you want to know that, you can see me afterwards. And then if you're paying attention in popular culture, there's a new word. What is it? The goat. Now, if you're maybe not as attuned to pop culture as I am, um, <laughs> or as my sons taught me, really. Um, a GOAT is an acronym for greatest, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. And so he's talking about he's the GOAT. I mean, when I grew up, GOAT was not necessarily a, a compliment, but it, but it is now. You're the GOAT. But have you ever thought about the fact that the word greatest, E-S-T, is a comparative? To be the greatest means you are better in reference to someone or something else. In other words, greatness is popularly and commonly defined by comparing something or someone to something or something else who is by definition inferior to the greater one. I looked up the antonyms, the, the, the opposites of the word great or greatness. If you're not the greatest, these are the opposite. Ready? Averageness, badness, crumminess. That was in the Webster's Dictionary. Inferiority, mediocrity, ordinariness, and worthlessness. That's the opposite of great or greatness. In other words, common understandings of greatness look at others in a way that's competitive and in a way that's self-promoting. In short, natural, worldly, intuitive understanding of greatness exalts the self, diminishes other, others, and ultimately ignores God, who alone is great. But as we're gonna begin seeing, as Jesus starts showing the real measure of great and greatness, the biblical understanding of greatness praises God lifts up and extols others and dies to self. Completely counterintuitive, completely the opposite of what you'll see in greatness in the world. Now, this is a vital lesson and a part of the final curriculum that Jesus is teaching his disciples as he prepares to go to Jerusalem and die. We are weeks away from the crucifixion. This is the final chapters of Jesus teaching the disciples. They are about to leave Galilee and start south, a hundred mile journey to the cross. Jesus is preparing them. These are the, these are the notes you give someone, the, the instructions you give someone as they're going out the door. These are the last, final, and last, and lasting words. Let's pick up this lesson that Jesus is going to teach today. Now, I want you to notice the title because it's important. A first lesson on true greatness. Now, the reason is there is going to be a second lesson on true greatness in chapter 10 because they don't get the first lesson on true greatness and it's going to be almost identical. 
As we pick up this lesson, let's observe together four priorities of true greatness. Four priorities of true greatness. <clears throat> now, the first may not seem to fit, but it actually is the, the linchpin on which the entire rest of the lesson on greatness is built. Number one, the first priority of true greatness is this, the cross before the crown, suffering before reigning, sacrifice before glory, in other words, the cross before the crown. This is Jesus' second prediction in Mark of his coming death and resurrection. Look at verse 30. From there, they went out. Stop right there. There, if you back up in the text, is that Jesus had come down the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, where he took Peter, James, and John up to behold his glory, to see Moses and Elijah, to hear the voice of God the Father from the cloud. They were excited. Peter says, let's build three tents. Let's build three worship services. Let's, let's have some buildings here and just make this permanent. He says, no, not yet. They come down the hill as he's coming down the hill. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer, to die at the hands of the, the high priests and the Jewish leaders, and I will rise from the dead. As they drop down into the valley, the other nine have been trying to cast a demon out of a little boy who had epileptic seizures or epileptic um, symptoms, and they couldn't. And so they're debating with the scribes, and you can see the, 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 the scribes completely talking smack to the disciples. Yeah, yeah, you're really powerful. Yeah, just like Jesus. Let's see you do this. And they couldn't. Jesus comes up, delivers this little boy from this demon infestation. And in the end, he says, this can only be accomplished by prayer. In other words, there are things better than, bigger than your own abilities. From there, from that situation, they leave. That's the from there. They, he, they went out and began to go through Galilee. This doesn't mean they were touring around Galilee on a bus. The idea is they were going through Galilee on the way to somewhere else. Luke and Matthew tell us that they were stopping there briefly on their way to Jerusalem down the Jordan River Valley. But look at this. Jesus didn't want anyone to know about it. We come again to that secrety motif that Mark continues to talk about. Why? Because the crowds were continuing to respond to his feeding of thousands with very little food, of his healing of any sickness, of his, his uh, walking on water and casting out demons and raising people from the dead. And they, like you and I, would have wanted him to be president, him to be king. But it wasn't his time, so he wanted to be incognito and go through Galilee down to Jerusalem. This is Mark's last reference to Galilee until after Christ's resurrection where he'll come and meet his men. Think about this. Galilee is, there's some sentimentality in this little phrase through, passing through Galilee. It's been God's arena for his own son, God incarnate. It's been the theater in which God has displayed the greatest revelation of himself he exercised authority, he taught, he demonstrated his power, he performed miracles and cast out demons. But now, Jesus and his followers are merely passing through. And the Lord desires secrecy. And the secrecy is, I, I, I have some things to teach you and I can't be bothered by the crowds bringing me everyone who needs to be healed and telling me they're hungry. I, I just need time with you men because I won't be with you very much longer. This is the final journey with his men as they trek toward Jerusalem. And 
the most important of all lessons is going to unfold there in his execution, but the preparation for that is so importantly linked to this lesson before us. Now, Mark records that there were three separate times that Jesus specifically predicts his coming death and resurrection. In 831, look back over there very quickly, just across the page. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, this is after Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's important. You are the Christ. And he says, I'm glad that you know that, but by the way, the Christ, me, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He was stating the matter plainly, clearly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. In other words, saying, this, this is not the way of the Messiah. This is not the way of, of the ruling, reigning King of Israel. We also have the situation that we just read. Where after, immediately, think about this, immediately after Jesus tells them, I'm going to suffer, be killed, son of man is going to die by the hands of men, be buried and rise from the grave. Then there's this lesson where Jesus talks to them about their desire to know who is the best or the greatest. Why is this the first lesson on that? Turn over to chapter 10. Verse 32. See if this sounds familiar. They were on the road going to Jerusalem that they've now left and they're traveling down the Jordan River Valley. Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to teach them what was going to happen to him. Do you hear the same lesson? Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. He gets more specific. They will mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him. And then three days later, he'll rise again. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said, said to them, What do you want me to do for you? This is code for, Did you hear what I said? They said to him, grant to us that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Do you see a pattern here? Peter says, right after the prediction of his suffering, his death, his resurrection, no, 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 that shouldn't happen. There's another way to have greatness. And after Jesus is walking and hears the a nose of a conversation behind him, they, they are arguing about who's the greatest. And then it happens just a few weeks later on their journey down to Jerusalem. This is the most important lesson that's going to unfold here for their preparation. Critically, critically important. You know what I find interesting is that God wonderfully teaches us lessons in his word. The Savior taught lessons over and over and over and over and over and over again. Not because he had a repetition problem, but because we have an application problem. And that's exactly what's happening here. He brings them aside. He's now talking to them about their most important lesson to begin. The cross is before the crown. The time has come. Going to Jerusalem, going to die. As I said, Luke says, at this point, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. 
Now look at verse 31. He was teaching the disciples, son of man. Here's an outline of the coming passion. Let's break it down just a little bit. He's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer. There's a cross. Might be interesting for you to note that they did not know at this point about his execution on a cross. In all these predictions, he says nothing about a crucifix, a crucifixion or a cross, just that he's going to die. It's a traumatic prediction. By the way, the verb is significant. He was teaching them. The tense is imperfect, active, indicative. In other words, this is something he said over and over and over again. We have three of these occurrences and Mark pairs them with immediately afterwards these three times where their greatness is laid against the pursuit of the cross. The son of man. This is particularly relevant because he would die as the perfect human substitute for man. Look at the, the entendre here, the double entendre that you see in, in the Greek, but you can also see it in, in the English. The son of man is going to be delivered up into the hands of men. This is important because earlier he talked about scribes and priests, which was true, but this is more universal. This is more generic. Remember, Mark is writing predominantly to a Gentile audience. Unless they think, oh, those Jews were responsible Mankind has a responsibility here in the crucifixion. It's a play on words. The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Can you just push pause? First of all, Jesus strangely and ironically is talking about himself in third person. He's depersonalizing it. He's not complaining about it. He's not whining about it. He's not preventing it or in any way trying to avoid it. They will kill him. They is the men laying the burden of guilt on Jesus' murder, on humanity he created. Please see your own face in that word, men. And when he has been killed, certainty. Reputation is important. He's going to be killed. And when he has been killed, there will be a real death, a public death, a verifiable death, a death that was confirmed by burial, a horrific death. And he would be buried as a dead man by people who understood how to check for a heartbeat who understood what a pulse was, who understood as a living, these Roman soldiers, that if he was dead, he was dead. No swooning, he was truly dead. And then this glorious prediction, and he will rise three days later. The verb is powerful, me. It means he will stand up, it's a middle voice, in and of himself. No one rises from the grave by themselves. Three days after his crucifixion. Jesus is so kind and so thoughtful in preparing these men for the coming death, his burial, his resurrection. Now, if you had heard your mentor, your discipler, tell you, I'm going to go and die, suffer, be buried, be executed, be killed, Three days later, I'm going to be, be dead no longer and rise from the dead. 
Might that raise a few questions in your mind? It just reminds me to pause and say, do we understand the power and the life-altering truths of the gospel? It's a good place to pause and say, do you believe these truths? Do you understand how important they all, the choir sang about the divine exchange that Jesus, in his incredible unmatched death, no other death was like the son of God's. He was truly God and truly man. He died in our place so we wouldn't have to. He suffered the wrath of God so you wouldn't have to. And also granted us the perfect life he lived, the perfect righteousness he possessed as God's son and deity incarnate. He gave that to us when we didn't deserve it. And to prove that all that was true, after he was killed and buried, he rose from the grave. Do you believe that? Will you believe that? There is hope for your troubled life, hope for your wicked life, hope for your your guilt-ridden life today. If you will believe that, transfer your trust to Jesus as Savior and stop relying on yourself. Stop rolling and turning in bed wondering what your standing is before God. These facts have theological implications on what they did for us. And our response is to believe and turn to Jesus. What was the response, by the way? No questions, but we do find out what they said, which was nothing. Verse 32. They, were, they didn't understand this, and, and, and they were afraid to ask. Don't, don't miss what the disciples miss here. The 12 did not understand. Ah, gnoain. We've talked about the word gnosis, gnosis before. No, they ah knew it. They did not know it. They didn't understand it. They didn't have any grasp of what he was talking about. It. Even more so, the verb can be translated, they ignored it. James Edwards captures the gravity of this moment well when he writes, Mark's irony is rich and heavy. When the word of God is finally spoken, the human response, even from the hand-picked followers, is of ignorance and fear. They were afraid. How difficult for the disciples to understand, to believe, and to follow. If we have difficulty imagining not being moved, the disciples not being moved, let's just ask how many of us truly understand, believe, and follow Jesus ourselves. End quote. The heart of their misunderstanding is about how they fit into this. Remember their thoughts. Look at everything and feel a bit of sympathy. I get a little weary of sometimes my own heart and sometimes commentators who just berate the disciples all the time. Why didn't they understand? They were so stupid. They were hard-hearted. What would you have thought? He's forgiving sins, raising the dead, feeding thousands, performing miracles, casting out demons, going to Jerusalem, the capital He's the king. He had announced to Peter his affirmation. He was the Messiah. Wouldn't you think this is a good thing? Be careful being too hard on them and not finding ourselves in the mirror. One of Mark's underlying themes over and over and over is discipleship, preparation, what it really means to be a follower of Jesus when he's not going to be around 
after his ascension, and that also instructs us on how to follow Jesus. Jesus is here teaching a very basic principle that's about to be diminished by their own response, that the path to glory would have sacrificed before glory. But that is the exact opposite of the mindset of the 12. The first priority that's gonna solicit this whole lesson, the cross comes before the crown. But number two, a second priority, humility in place of ambition. Humility in place of ambition. Wow. They came to Capernaum. This is Jesus' home base. He probably lived with Peter's family when he was there. And he was in the house, likely Peter's house, if we take the flow of Mark's narrative um, in context. And he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way, literally on the road? Mark intends for us to put these together. He was teaching them. This this means an ongoing lesson. He kept repeating it and cycling back to it about the coming death and the crucifixion, the burial, rising from the grave. And he notices something. These guys are talking. He says, what were you discussing on the way? We're right at the lakeside village of our old friendly place, Capernaum, and Mark informs us that they are now in that house. Again, likely Peter's. And he says, hey, what were you guys talking about? This is interesting. The fact that he asked that meant he hadn't been a part of the conversation. The men had been busy talking. But the way Jesus asks indicate that they said to themselves in probably whispered, hushing tones, make sure he can't hear us. This is not hard to imagine. You've walked in groups before. Maybe you want to say something privately. You let someone that you don't want to hear go a little bit ahead or you get ahead of them. This is exactly what was going on here. Now, there are two options here for why Jesus asks that. Either he did not hear or he did not know. He may have heard and just not let them know. Or he may have not heard, but he knew. Think about this. 50 years later, 55 probably years later, John wrote about this same Jesus. And he said in John 2, he himself, Jesus, knew what was in man. Perhaps he's reflecting on this moment to say he knew what we were talking about, but he didn't hear us. What was it that Jesus knew? What had the men been so secretive about? They were debating with each other about who was the goat? Who was the greatest? Who's better? And we'll get to chapter 10. It's who's gonna sit in the best place? Who's got shotgun, as kids say when they're getting in the car? Stunning contrast here that Mark makes. He wants us to be very aware because he makes the contrast between Jesus First prediction and Peter's rebuking him between this second prediction and the conversation they had on the road and the third prediction on the way up to Jerusalem, probably from Jericho going up in altitude toward Jerusalem where they, they're discussing behind them where they're gonna sit when Jesus is on the throne. Who's got the better seat? It underscores a seismic misunderstanding on their part and on ours about the nature of true discipleship. True discipleship is about humility, not greatness. It measures the cost. It doesn't major on the gain. It points to Jesus and others while diminishing self. 
And as Jesus describes his sacrifice, they discuss their rank and positions. Do you see how this is going on at the same time? I'm going to, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. Which one of us is better? They were told but did not believe that just a few weeks later their master was going to indeed be executed. They were thinking, no doubt, about going to Jerusalem and ruling and reigning. And so would you and I had we been there. So Jesus provides for them an amazing and stunning visual illustration. Humility in the place of ambition. You're worried about who's the best, but humility is to place, replace that ambition and that lesson is illustrated in our third priority of true greatness. Service over prominence. And this is the heart of the passage. Service over prominence. Sitting down. We've seen this before. When Jesus walked into the synagogue, he sat down. This doesn't mean that everyone walked in, grabbed a couch, grabbed a chair, grabbed a cushion, and sat down and have a chat. Sitting down is an official Jewish signature of now he's at the pulpit. Now he's teaching. Were we in a synagogue uh, in Jesus' day and we were worshiping together? I would be sitting down in the front and you would all be standing around. There's actually a lot of, anyway, um, something attractive about that. It's a sign of authority. He sat down and then he called the 12 and said to them. So in the house, but in the house, there are, well, there is at least one child. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all, more specifically, and servant of all. This is the principle of the passage clearly stated. If you really want to be first, the path to preeminence is to be last. If you really want to be in charge, then you serve. It's a complete reversal of their thinking. It's contrarian. The disciples had been arguing about who was the greatest. This is interesting. I don't want to bore you with the original language. The greatest means megas. We've seen mega in, in, uh, in Mark before, the mega storm and, and the mega trouble that they had and the mega calm when Jesus uh, calmed the storm. Who's the mega? Who's the, the biggest? Jesus doesn't use that word, though, when he talks to them, if anyone wants to be first, he doesn't use the word megas, he uses the word protos. Not just big, but best overall. They have been saying, who's the best of us? And Jesus says, I'm gonna tell you who the, who's the best of all is. I'm gonna give you a principle that transcends the 12 that are sitting here under my tutelage. Remember, the disciples have not told him what they're arguing about. <laughs> Can you imagine what they're thinking? They're arguing about who's the greatest, and then he says this. Okay, if anybody wants to be the best of all, the goat, greatest of all time, he shall be two qualifications, last and servant. In other words, you don't get in the front of the line, you get in the back of the line. You don't look for preeminence and prominence, you look for service and obscurity. 
The path to true greatness is to be a servant. Don't miss the little phrase of who? Of some, of all. Look, we all love to serve people who will give us attention for it. We love to serve people who will give us accolades for it. We love to serve people who will give us attaboys for it. We love to serve people who will notice our service. He says, no, serve all. A servant of all the last and the least. So to illustrate this point, he does something unexpected, inexplicable, and culturally significant. Notice Jesus did not, does not renounce the idea of greatness. He redefines it. He doesn't say aspirations for true greatness are ill-founded. He says aspirations for true greatness need to be redefined so this is what he does in verse six, verse six. Taking a child, this is important, I think. Mark tells us, he set him before them and taking him. It's a little boy. Takes a little boy. I just wonder in my sanctified imagination as this little boy grew up, what he thought of this moment. If he was even old enough to remember it. If his parents told him about it. He took a little boy into his arms. This is a term of affection. This is not he sat the boy beside him and said, you shall be an illustration, be still. He pulled him into his lap and pulled him close. And he said to them, now this is important, the boy is there, but the boy is not spoken to, the boy is spoken about. He says to the disciples, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this, the one on his lap, in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me, working backwards, to receive God, to receive Jesus is to receive God the Father. That was his message in the upper room discourse in John 13 and 14. If you receive me, you receive him. If you know me, you know him. If you've seen me, you've seen him. And our American affection for little ones, it's easy for us to import our loving of little kids and running around their church and they're cute and fun, to import that idea into this context, but that's the exact opposite that Jesus wants us to see. They were seen primarily as future adults just to be dealt with and tolerated until they were old enough. They were the workers. There were no child labor laws. <laughs> They worked. They didn't go to school all day. They worked with family. They were a, a utilitarian part of the culture. Even though they were loved and adored, that's, that's not the point. The point was these were the least looked at as prominent. Children don't typically, without any provocation, give awards for greatest anything. I have a cup that uh, one of my sons gave me in my office, it says, greatest dad. I love that cup. But you know what I know about that cup? Someone had him do that. <laughs> he wasn't sitting around thinking, I have the greatest dad in the history of the world who needs to drink coffee from a cup I might write on. That's not what he was thinking at all. 
children don't typically give attaboys. They are an illustration of what verse 35 calls the last, the least. And by the way, it's not the child that's the illustration here. It's the one who receives the child, who cares for the child, who gives attention to the least. He's not saying be like a child. He's saying embrace and serve those like children who will not praise you for your greatness. The very greatness the disciples wanted praise and position for from each other and to sit on the throne. Chapter 10 will tell us. He says, no, why don't you seek to be appreciated by those who will give you no appreciation? Footnote. Can I just please thank you and give a personal word of appreciation for those of you who serve in our children's, in our nursery, downstairs? You know, we make the announcement week in and week out. Bob made it this morning about if you can serve, please help us. Listen very carefully. That investment is into eternity, not only for them, but for your heart. Investing in their little minds, making church something they enjoy and look forward to, a place of warmth and comfort and caring and welcome. Changing diapers and cleaning up vomit are acts of God pleasing worship. Can I say that again? Changing diapers and cleaning up vomit from little ones in our church are acts of God-pleasing worship. You know why? Because they don't praise you. They don't honor you. And the only honor and praise you get is from the smile of a loving heavenly father. The disciples were saying, and they'll say in chapter 10, who's gonna sit you know, in the best place where everyone can see me by Jesus. Oh, I know they'll be looking at Jesus, but I know they'll notice me. He was saying, no, true greatness is when you serve the least of all, like this child who will not give you accolades and awards and write you notes of thanks. What is serving the least do for our hearts. It makes sure that our serving is for the Lord, doesn't it? It's purifying. Service to others is viewed as a greater act of worship than prominence and appreciation in the eyes of Jesus. I've often talked with fellow pastors who we affirm and agree that I'm convinced when I get to heaven, and if there's an order of seats in the theater around God's praise, I will be way in the balcony looking at the back of the heads of those who were changing diapers and cleaning up vomit. Service in the eyes of Jesus is true greatness, even caring for a thankless child. Number four, the fourth priority. It's almost mind-numbing that this question would even come up. After this, you, you just want to say, shh, don't say anything else. Have you ever been in a conversation or heard someone talking and they're just, they, they just keep kind of 
being awkward and inappropriate and you just want to say, oh, please don't, just stop talking. And John didn't stop talking. Number four, ministry ahead of privilege. Ministry ahead of privilege. It was almost like John throws Jesus a softball and says, we don't get it. Can you make it clearer? John said to him, after this illustration of the child, teacher, we, now who's the we? Likely his brother James, they were always in tandem. They were the sons of thunder. We're gonna meet them again in chapter 10, wanting to get good seats in the kingdom. We saw someone casting out demons in your name. Stop right there. What had just happened? They had tried to cast out a demon and were unable and Jesus had to rescue them. They were feeling a little bit defeated and they find someone who was doing it effectively. Boy, Mark turns up the volume knob to 10 in verses 38 to 41. Now, John, inner circle of the three with Peter and James, he had been with Jesus on the mountain. He had saw Jesus, seen Jesus transfigured. He had heard the voice of the Father. He had seen Moses. He had seen Elijah. He was a privileged of privileged. Coming down the mountain, he probably was thinking, yeah, I'm in the inner circle. I'm one of the, the main ones, which will make sense when he gets to chapter 10 and says, I wanna make sure I have the right seat. Don't forget when you order people in your kingdom where I belong, This is hard to read. We saw someone cast out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he was not following, what's the pronoun? Us. Wouldn't you think they would have said, you, Lord? Did they think they were to be followed? Did they have a Messiah complex? It's so ironic that they are critical of another follower of Jesus doing work in the Lord's name, which they were unable to do, and they were critical. Oh, the principle here is so deep and rich and just shreds my own heart. It, it, let me encourage you to ask God for some divine lidocaine or anesthetic in these next few verses. Jesus says, verse 39, don't hinder him. They were trying to stop him. Stop it. Stop trying to stop him. For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name, which this person had done, and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. What in the world is he talking about? Jesus' message is this. If he's doing ministry in my name, leave him alone. Wow, too many contemporary believers and even ministers are motivated to criticize others doing ministry out of jealousy, out of pride, out of ambition, and feeling that they have exclusive insider privilege with Christ. Jesus is making a really interesting point here. If you do ministry in Christ's name, then you are positioning yourself loyally to him. This is, 
really penetrating in my own heart. Several years ago, I was introduced to John Brown, Scottish minister, 1830 to 1922. And he was saying to a, um, a newly ordained minister, Actually, it was a group of newly ordained ministers. These were pupils. They had been commissioned and ordained, and he was giving them their final words as they were to go out to be pastor. Listen to this. He says this. I know the vanity of your hearts and that you will be mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you. What is he saying? Some of you are going to have small churches, some big churches, and the small church pastors are going to look at the big church pastors and be jealous. Listen to what he says. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of these people in your church to the Lord at his judgment seat, you will think that you have had enough. It's a great insight, isn't it? That's a pastor's perspective. What's in your heart? Do you find yourself in the service of the Lord and ministry? looking to others with jealousy if they have a greater prominence or greater appreciation? What's in your heart? Are you jealous? Are you ambitious? Do you want more fame for yourself? Here's the principle in verse 40. He who is not against us is for us. Jesus is, was more inclusive than his disciples were. But no, there is no neutrality about Jesus. These men, these miracle workers, these exorcists were, were loyal to Jesus. Then the final principle is outlined in verse 41. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. First, notice that Jesus, in an ironic sense, calls himself the Christ. If you ever wondered, did Jesus really know who he was? Peter affirmed he was the Christ in the previous chapter. Now he stands up and says, I, not only am I am the Christ, he calls himself the anointed one, the Messiah. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ. Boy, the, the hospitality in that passage just compels us to say, are we believers? Are we a church? Are we a group of people who longingly invite other believers to enjoy hospitality in our homes or we notice that there are needs and we, we organize so that we can meet them? This is not saying to go solve world hunger. It's not saying to make sure that every tribe on every Every uh, continent has a well to drink from. Look at what he's saying. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you are a follower of Christ, then that person who honors you will not lose his reward. Dripping from this passage is the disciples' desire to be rewarded 
In the last verse here, Jesus says, those who minister in my name will be rewarded, but the reward will come by me in due time in heaven. Remember how we began defining biblical or godly greatness? True greatness praises God's greatness, promotes others, dies to self. Think about this. True greatness is an attitude toward God. There is none like you, Jeremiah 10, 6 says. You are great and great is your name and might. First Chronicles 29. Yours, O Lord, David's blessing the offering for the temple. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power of the, and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in heavens and on earth, yours is the dominion and you exalt yourself as head over all true Greatness sees that only God is great. That's our attitude toward God. True greatness is an attitude toward others as well. Philippians 2, do nothing from selfishness, 2, 5, 2, 3 to 5 rather. Do nothing from selfishness or empty arrogance, conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves and do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but the interests of others. And have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. So it's an attitude, true greatness is an attitude toward God. It's an attitude toward others. And it's an attitude toward self. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who lives with Christ in me. Mark 8.35, we studied it. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. So all of that is, is to get to this point. I don't know what's in your heart, but I want you to. Do you desire to be known, loved, appreciated, admired, respected, awarded, rewarded, or recognized, especially when it comes to ministry efforts? Whose eyes are you aiming to gain a glance from? Position and pleasure will be ultimately realized in heaven. And when we, listen, friends, when you and I as believers come to the throne and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And he puts on our heads a crown. In our perfected understanding, we will take those crowns and toss them back at his feet. True greatness in God's eyes is not measured by gifts, or position, or privilege, or status in ministry or anything else. True greatness is seen in any believer in the menial and mundane tasks of serving others. Are you a servant of all, including those who will not appreciate your service? That's the test of true greatness. Let's pray.